Welcome to the Women's Health Wisdom and Wine podcast, a bi-weekly conversation with practitioners, providers, patients, and healers about complex reproductive medicine and women's health challenges, the value of an integrative approach to these challenges, many of the women's health topics you're already thinking about but uncomfortable talking about, and my personal favorite, wine. I'm your host, Dr. Lorena White, an integrative reproductive medicine and women's health provider, licensed acupuncturist, clinical herbalist, and a former labor support doula in the Washington, D.C. metro area. My goal is to bring women's health-specific evidence and expertise to the forefront of daily health and wellness news through informative conversations. If you have ideas, questions, and specific topics that you would like us to cover in future podcast episodes, please leave them in the comments section or send us an email. To learn more, visit the website at www. LorenaWhite.com. As you enjoy the podcast, conversations, and wine time, please remember that this podcast is not designed to be a substitute or a bona fide relationship with a licensed or certified healthcare professional. In today's episode, Sharnice Littles and IBCLC talks with me about breastfeeding and lactation support, the importance of having and choosing a baby-friendly hospital, and the 10 steps to successful breastfeeding. Let's listen. Welcome, welcome, welcome. August is National Breastfeeding and Lactation Support Month, and the theme for World Breastfeeding Week at the beginning of this month was breastfeeding, a shared responsibility, which encourages us to reach further out into the community. So, Ms. Charnice, our guest for today, please introduce yourself and talk to us briefly about your work as an international board-certified lactation consultant and how you feel breastfeeding and lactation support is a community effort. Hey, so happy to be here. So thank you for having me first and foremost. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm Sharnice Littles, I'm an IBCLC from Bowie, Maryland, I'm currently supporting families in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area. I have a six-year-old kiddo named KJ. Hey, KJ. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much me. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like the whole credential is such a mouthful. <laughs> yes, it is. I wanted <laughs> I wanted to say it out loud one full time so people could see what it actually is, what all the credentialing means. But at the same time, it's probably the last time I'm going to say it all one because IBCLC is way easier and way quicker. But continue. <laughs> yes, I love to simplify it. So I usually tell people when they ask me, what do you do? I tell them I help families figure out infant feeding however they wish that to be. And so that's just my goal is to helping people reach their goals with infant feeding. It is such a community effort. Oh, my goodness. People a lot of the times think, oh, it just takes a baby and this Mm -hmm. parent and then it just works. Right. And that's just the furthest thing from the truth. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It takes so much effort. Um, It takes a lot of time. And sometimes we just don't know what's going on. And so you need a person there to help guide you. I always say, you know, everyone doesn't need an IBCLC, but every new parent, especially one who's nursing 
definitely needs a group of people around them who can, one, relate to what they're doing, but two, help them out when they just don't know how it's supposed to go down. Yeah, and we're going to touch on some of those things momentarily. And you, again, already started off by hitting on the first part, which is when people consider breastfeeding, they assume it's this natural process that just automatically happens after delivery and it's perfect and it's bliss. And if you watch a sitcom or a rom-com and someone has a baby, it just happens naturally. Like in the first 20 seconds of the after delivery, baby's nursing and everyone's fine and there are no tears and there's no frustration. <laughs> and that's not how it happens in real life. So while it is a natural process, sometimes it doesn't come naturally to all mothers and babies. So please speak to this misconception. Yeah, it's the biggest misconception about my entire profession. It is <laughs> literally why I have a job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It's definitely not so simple. There are so many things that can go into nursing. I think a lot of the times parents come into nursing with a lot of preconceived notions of what they expect it to be like. Right. Um, And that just might not be true. And it just may be harder than what we anticipate it to be for so many different reasons. It could be the way someone's recovering in the postpartum period. It could be the way someone's birth went down. Right. Um, it could be their anatomy. It could be their hormones. It could be baby's anatomy. There are just so many reasons why we could have a bit of hiccups. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that, you know, nursing can't happen and it won't be this easy, blissful thing later, but it's not always that perfect start. Right. And I think so many times, Again, we just feel like, okay, mom had a baby, baby has a mouth, nursing just happens, and what could what could go wrong? And literally, by the time delivery is over, that's probably when all the chaos starts happening because it is a natural process that doesn't happen naturally. So this is, again, why you said why you stay gainfully employed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so choosing to breastfeed one's newborn is a personal decision, and it shouldn't be taken lightly. Uh, When is a good time to start considering whether one wants to breastfeed or not? Definitely in the prenatal process. I would even say before someone is even expecting. Okay, good. I think it's really tough when people make decisions about infant feeding when the infant is right in front of them. Mm. Because so many things are happening at that time, right? So we're recovering, we're tired, maybe we're sore from delivery. All of these things are happening at once, and it's it's a little bit difficult to make decisions and to learn something for the very first time. It's just a very vulnerable space. So I like people to think about it before the baby is here. Um, I like my friends, especially those who are not expecting yet to know as much about it before they are as possible. And I think it creates a better situation later. I think it creates Mm -hmm. um, an environment where people can know what to expect while they're nursing and not have as many of those panicked moments. Right. Like we talk about in general, we shouldn't be making decisions when we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And after delivery, you're probably hungry. Your baby is definitely hungry, angry, potentially, depending on how that birth went down. Like you said, lonely, potentially, maybe, and tired, definitely so. So making those decisions at that moment, probably not best for anybody involved, including mother, baby, and everyone around, including the nursing staff, because then they won't know what to do, how to do, or how to assist. And just this is general. Sometimes there's not even a breastfeeding and lactation consultant on call or on staff at the moment of your delivery, depending on what time of day you deliver. This is completely an aside, but talk to us about that and how 
that could help a situation or make a situation worse when a mom really needs help making that transition. I think that is my biggest pet peeve, especially with hospitals in my area. It's the understaffing of lactation support, okay. as well as the variability of who that lactation supporter is. Okay. So a lot of people think that if you're in a hospital setting, you have to have an IBCLC helping you, mm-hmm. when honestly, we can have breastfeeding peer educators. We can yeah. have lactation specialists that probably aren't board certified. And they have such a huge role in the success of a hospital-based lactation program or um, a birthing facility lactation program. It's definitely something that needs to be looked at more closely by hospitals in the area. I think it'll be great if everyone was fully staffed almost all the time. All the time, yeah. It makes a huge difference. I mean, even these night shifts, a lot of times lactation consultants are out the door by 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. and then you deliver at midnight or at 4 in the One morning. 1 o'clock in the morning, yep. You know, <laughs> and things aren't going well and you're working with people who may have some experience but may not be as comfortable helping with lactation so I definitely think that's something that we can do better on as a community and I'm sure that's true in many states and spaces absolutely and I think one you mentioned it may not be the most experienced person sometimes it's a person who doesn't even want to or support breastfeeding at all and they're the ones that one that you might be paired with and they're not going to be able to offer any support and you mentioned um, peer support, you mentioned non-IBCLC staff. Can you do some basic delineation just so our listeners can know what the difference is between an IBCLC and someone who isn't IBCLC certified and someone who's a uh, peer supporter, all, all those designations so they can learn how to recognize what breastfeeding and lactation support is available to them at their specific institution or hospital? That's an amazing question. So there are three pathways to go into working towards an IBCLC. In general, they all include a variety of science courses, about 14 of them. They all include clinical hours um, as well as mentorship as well. So that goes into it. For me, I went through a pathway where I had to complete over a thousand hours, um, clinical hours that were supervised from a mentor. And so... I was very much so under the scope in terms of how I was learning to support other families. Okay. Some certifications like um, a breastfeeding peer supporter or a lactation specialist that's certified, they may have to go through a different type of training, but it may be like 45 hours or 90 hours or something like that. Some of them require you to be a parent that has nursing experience. Some don't. Oh, wow. Um, so there's those delineations as well. Okay, that's that's interesting. And I think it's an interesting component to have that personal experience being someone who, again, is supporting others who are choosing to nurse and lactate, um, nurse their babies and have, need some lactation support. So once the process and the work of breastfeeding begins, mothers may wonder things like, am I doing this right? Is my baby getting enough milk? Um, why are my breasts so sore? How do, how do you address these questions so as to assist with some of the difficulties they may be experiencing and to ease some of those concerns? I love approaching it with anticipatory guidance. Okay. So every time I see a family, we're talking about what they're experiencing now, but also what they should be experiencing in the next two to three days. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I think that's just the best approach for it, where it's like, hey, this is what's happening. This is what I need you to expect these things are not going to happen perfectly. Baby may be a little bit tired. Um, 
sometimes it may hurt a little bit, but then we can fix it and try to make it not hurt later. Okay. All these things. And then we talk about, you know, what's going to happen in the next couple of days. And that's all catered towards what they're experiencing. Okay. You know, some people after delivery have a lot of complex health issues. Mm. And so we may need a mixture of nursing with baby directly at the breast plus some pumping plus okay. some hand expression. And so we never really know what we're going to, what we're going to see when we walk through the door, but there's mm-hmm. always a plan to help get things going. Okay. I like that. So you mentioned pumping, you mentioned breastfeeding and you mentioned hand expression. So let's, let's delineate those. Let's talk about those now because I know someone's going to like hand expression. Does she mean use my hand to express my own breast milk? That's exactly what that means. That's exactly (laughs) what it is. So let's talk about that. I love hand expression. I think it is my absolute favorite part about lactation. Um, It is like you said, a method to remove your own milk from yep. your own body with your own hand yes. um, or someone else's hand. Shoot. I don't really yep. care. Yeah. <laughs> get that job done. Get it done. You know, just get it done. <laughs> with, with human milk, the way that we um, kind of increase the supply is by removing it. The more you remove, the more you get in. Okay. And so in the beginning, especially if we have some complex issues from delivery, we can always try to counteract it by removing extra milk. And that can be done either by extra feedings with the baby, through pumping, with a breast pump, or with hand expression. I like hand expression more so because after delivery, you have that first milk, which is called colostrum, Mm -hmm. and it is so thick. It is like raw honey on a spoon, dripping down super slow. Yeah. And sometimes those breast pumps are just not going to do what I want it to do. Yeah, they're not ready for it. They're not ready ready for for it. it. It's not ready yet. Especially when it's like three hours after delivery. Right. But that hand usually does exactly what it needs to do to just give everyone a little bit extra help. And like you mentioned, it's your hand or someone else's hand. So you can better able to control, maneuver and position in ways that a breast pump sometimes just isn't able to accommodate. So yeah. it very, it's, it, again, I feel sometimes it's even more effective and more efficient because you're able to actually feel and literally come in contact with your own body and that it's an intimate connection so that you can feel like what is happening and what positions work best for you. So thank you for making those delineations and explanation. It also removes the myth of like, Oh my God, I have nothing. Right. Right. A lot of families are like, okay, I I feel my baby pulling and sucking, but I don't see anything. Mm -hmm. And so for the people who really want that visual confirmation, we can go to hand expression and help them out that way. Excellent. Nice tip. So let's make this practical. A mother is full of frustrations, questions, doubts, and needs some encouragement. How would you begin to assist in, in the moment where she's pretty much feeling desperate, hopeless, confused, maybe angry, just not understanding why is this happening and just need some, some assistance? So step one is always listening. Mm -hmm. Definitely every time I come in contact with the family, we are taking the time to listen and to affirm their feelings and their frustrations because usually they are plentiful. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to get those all out so they can really just take a deep breath and put that aside so we can try to figure out what's the best step going forward for this person. Okay. So first we're listening really, really hard. Um, And again, we're giving that anticipatory guidance of this is what's normal and this is what to expect next. Okay. I love telling people what's normal. 
-hmm. it is probably like a second favorite thing to do because people think what they're experiencing is out of the realm of normal Mm -hmm. and 95% of the time it's not. Yeah. And I think that's the role of the media and showing these like perfectly ideal non-existent situations on a 30 minute TV show and everything just happens instantly and perfectly and blissfully and calmly and there's no tears and there's no frustration there's no you know anger there's no I can't believe this is happening why did I choose the breastfeed in the first place kind of conversations (laughs) and they're like okay that's not what it looked like on tv so there must be something wrong when in essence they're exactly where they should be at the time that they should be and everything is going according to plan so yes good point um so what if what is your approach if after everything's gone on a baby isn't gaining weight that's a great question um if a baby isn't gaining weight a full assessment of why that baby Mm -hmm. isn't gaining weight needs to occur okay and looking at the limits of things and also figuring out if the limits are pushed and if that's correct based upon the delivery. Okay. So for example, if someone is having a cesarean section or a belly birth, they are usually getting a lot of fluids. Mm -hmm. Like they're getting a lot of IV fluids during that delivery process. Right. And so some of those fluids are going to baby too. And so if we have a situation where the weight loss is a little bit outside of the norm of what we consider within normal limits, then that may be a reason why as well. Okay. Other reasons why um, it may happen or things that we may do is just assess how the milk supply is transitioning from colostrum into that more mature white milk that we're used to seeing. Okay. We may be doing some extra hand expression, some extra pumping, stuff like that to see if we can get more fluids inside of baby that's still the parent's expressed milk. Okay. Um, But if we can't for some reason, we still have formula. And so I think that a lot of times people have the notion that lactation consultants absolutely hate formula. (laughs) And that's just not true. It just has a very specific time and place. Right. And it could be help and support if the milk supply is not... Um, helping to sustain baby within normal limits, mm-hmm. or it could be because a parent just wants to mix it up a bit, and right. that's fine too. Okay, I like that, and I like that you made that distinction because I do believe probably ninety-five percent think of women parent parents mothers believe that lactation consultants will never ever suggest the introduction of formula in any circumstance. And again, it's not true. It just has to be a time and place and knowing how to introduce that. And if it's even necessary based on the things that have been tried and the efforts that have been put forth for that mother baby diet. So another gem, another gem. A lot of the times when I'm introducing myself or coming into a room to speak with families, it's not like, oh, how's breastfeeding going or how nursing going? That's mm-hmm. never the verbiage. It's always like, how's infant feeding? Like, yes. what's going on with feeding? I noticed you use that terminology and verbiage from the gate, and I appreciate that because, again, at the end of the day, it's important how your child, how your baby is, is feeding, no matter which way it is. Sometimes exactly. formula may not be working out, and we've got to try something different. Yeah. Um, so it's important, no matter what you choose, how is your infant feeding? So yes, reinforcing that terminology and that verbiage, that's more supportive, more inclusive, and definitely more empowering. Exactly. Breastfeeding should be painful, and sometimes it is. So how do you help a mother with breasts and her nipples that hurt? 
we're always going to try to fix the latch if it's like sustained pain and damage. Okay. I think that is the most helpful thing that we can do. You know, okay. there's also resting the nipples for a second. There's moving to, along to different forms of expression during healing. There's creams and gel pads and silverettes. There's just so many tools to do the things to help heal. Right. Um, but the thing that's going to do the most help is making sure that the latch is appropriate and that it's deep. And so okay. I always tell people, you know, we say breastfeeding and we don't say nipple feeding. Right. And that's because we don't want babies just kind of hanging out, drinking on nipples. Yeah. That hurts. That is going to hurt. We need them a little <laughs> further behind. Right, right. So we're definitely looking at how babies are latching on. We're looking at their oral anatomy and seeing if we see any red signs that possibly need to be referred on to another provider. Okay. Um, and we're just looking at, you know, everyone's comfort level and everyone's happiness during the process as well. I think that's important. So yeah. we're talking, let's see, we've talked about mom and what her comfort levels are and things that may be her concerns. If a baby has special needs like a cleft palate or Down syndrome, some mothers believe that they aren't able to nurse or that they're going to have problems nursing. Are you able to help with breastfeeding mothers who, in these instances, are they able to help or assist in these instances? Definitely. Oh, my goodness. There are so many um, parents with kids with special needs who nurse perfectly fine. And right. we may need certain tools and techniques to help that go more smoothly. Um, but in general, pretty much everyone can nurse. I, it's, it's really hard to be like, you know, nursing does not work for this particular family. Okay. Some women will say, Dr. White, you know, I, I didn't breastfeed because my milk never came in. Or um, I just, I didn't have any milk. Talk to us about that dynamic or that reason rationale, especially on the back of that last comment that you made that pretty much everyone can nurse. I myself feel the same way. Um, talk to us about how that dynamic, where did that, I guess, pretty much a myth come from that, oh, my milk, I don't have enough milk, or I don't have any milk, or I just can't breastfeed because I didn't make enough. Yeah, I, that comes from so many different things. Um, sometimes it can come from family. Sometimes it can come from not initiating the milk supply the way that we probably should have in the beginning for whatever reason. Okay. Um, sometimes it comes from just insecurities about trusting our own bodies. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can come from um, different methods of delivery that kind of hinder things in the beginning, but probably would have picked up later on. In general, I think support it's more so what's needed when situations like that happen when someone tells me oh my goodness the first time I didn't have any milk I always respond with oh my gosh I'm so sorry mm -hmm. do you want to try to like do it again like yeah. do we want to try this again this time and see how it goes it's never I never um negate people's perception of right. what occurred during their past experiences right so we just work towards you know what can make it work this time okay and I and I, again, another great point, just because you didn't breastfeed your first, second, third, or fourth child doesn't mean you cannot nurse breastfeed your latest child. Is that, exactly. is that what I hear? Okay. All right. Yeah. That's good to know. And let's talk about moms of multiples. How can you help mothers <laughs> who are preparing for twins, triplets, or even more babies? Ooh, practice, <laughs> practice, practice. Yes. <laughs> We are practicing and we are also looking at strategies to optimize rest, right? Okay. 
especially with multiples, I think sometimes people have the image of, oh my gosh, I'm going to sit here and all I'm going to do all day is feed this baby Mm -hmm. or these babies. Um, And that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes it can feel like that, but we need to make sure that we're practicing techniques for positions and different ways to nurse kiddos at the same time and different ways to probably add some flexibility into the mix if that's what that person wants. Yeah. So talk to us about some positions. Um, I know there are various positions for various scenarios for making sure that latch happens accurately and efficiently and effectively. So talk to us about the different positions, not just for moms of multiples who will literally be nursing more children than they potentially have breasts, but um, (laughs) the different positions that help um, help with that latch and also help with the comfortability for both mother and child. I have two favorite positions when it comes to latching, both of which include support of the hand on baby's neck and shoulders. Okay. And so I love those positions because I feel like it's easier to guide baby up and onto the breast that way. Okay. They're able to, well, the parent is able to kind of control the latch a little bit better. And then they also have a free hand to do whatever they want to do with. Okay. And so those positions, one is called the football position where the baby is more so to the side of the body. Mm-hmm. And they, we are holding them like we're running down a football field. Yeah, <laughs> literally, got it. like a running back tucked in. Exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh my goodness, the <laughs> the male parents love it. Yes, I'm sure <laughs> they're like, yes, I know how to do that one. They're like, like I can do that. this in my sleep. <laughs> exactly. I've been dreaming of this moment. <laughs> and then we have my second favorite, which is the cross cradle, which is almost the same positioning except baby's body is in front of the body. Okay. And even still, the baby and the parent should have their bellies facing and touching one another. Okay, excellent. And I know one of the major um, tidbits that I learned even throughout my clinical rotation is when you hold the baby at a certain angle, certain way, their little feet sometimes will be pit-pattering on the uterus. And that is a uterine tonic. So that will also help mothers not just get back to their pre-pregnancy form, but it'll help that uterus shrink back to its pre-pregnancy size and stay strong because baby is constantly kind of giving a little massage to that area and it'll help with the postpartum bleeding and it'll also help, you know, with making sure that milk comes in. Is that, is that true or is that something that I learned that was a myth <laughs> in school? It is true. The only thing that I say isn't so true is that, <clears throat> excuse me, is that A lot of times, immediately after delivery, when we're nursing, our bodies do shrink back to our, like, pre-pregnancy weight quickly. Mm -hmm. It it doesn't always stay, though. Okay. So so a lot of times, (laughs) a lot of times we're seeing those results when we're at home and when we're nursing all day at the body and when baby is, like, two months, three months old. But once we are, like, returning into the world, y'all, just know that might not stay. (laughs) But yes, you've been warned, those, you've been warned, you've been warned, <laughs> you know, <laughs> diet and exercise is needed. Right. But after delivery, that's one of the ways that I assess too. you know, I'm asking parents while you're nursing, are you feeling some uterine cramping mm-hmm. during your feedings? And if so, that's awesome. And that just gives me more reassurance that the right hormones are being released at the right times. Great. I like that. I like that. So we mentioned positioning. We talked about latch. Let's talk about something that's, I guess, more common in our black and brown communities. And we're going to talk about Black Breastfeeding Week 
in a moment. But what are some of the myths that really distract or discourage our black and brown mothers from breastfeeding in comparison to our Caucasian counterparts? Mm, okay. Um, I think one of the myths are I won't have enough mm-hmm. um, or baby won't be fat or chunky enough. <laughs> I think one thing that's not a myth, but I think one thing that can definitely be a deterrent or a barrier is like no one can watch my baby because mm. I am the one nursing and so people around me my community around me cannot help and watch baby for me because I'm nursing okay, okay. I hear that a lot um yeah I would think those are the the main ones or it's like I'm just doing this by myself and no one else can do it okay so let's flip it on its end these are the myths so they're obviously not true but what is the what is the flip side of that and what is the truth we started off with I'm not going to make enough so that my baby is going to be scrawny and weak and frail. I, I don't think that's obviously not the case. Um, I beg, I sometimes believe that breastfed babies are the fattest, chunkiest, little <laughs> pudgy-cheeked, pudgy-thighed, thunder-thighed kids around. Um, but you talked about the first one being that. So let's talk about that first myth in terms of babies not having enough and being scrawny and frawny and not chubby enough. How do you... How do you balance that with facts and support yeah you balance it with letting people know that you know the more you latch baby on the more they're eating and there are indicators that tell us that our babies are getting enough we're looking at their diaper output we're looking at their weight gain we're comparing them to growth charts that are appropriate for nursing infants and we're tracking them all the way through. There's always that catch of care, or at least they're supposed to be. We all know right. um, that our medical systems are not perfect. Deficient. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so ideally, you know, there are people around to catch when something isn't going well okay. and to catch why it's not going well. So most of the time our babies are getting enough and they are thriving off of human milk. What are some of those first signs and symptoms you as an IBCLC will say, like even before mom, sometimes mom may not even know that baby's not getting enough, but you notice as you are interacting and visualizing the entire breastfeeding and lactation process, what are some of the first signs that you would notice and that you would bring up to mom in terms of, hey, I'm not sure baby's getting um, enough. I'm not sure if you're making enough. Talk to us about that and what you would see as a as a professional. One of the things is the diaper output. So okay. if it's if baby is like 48 hours old and they haven't had a stool or a urination yet, that is okay. a huge red flag. We need to make sure that babies are able to digest and to pass. And in order to do that, they have to have intake. And right. so that's a, a huge one. Um, if babies are losing weight too quickly and too steeply, that's also a red flag. And so that's something that usually parents aren't aware of because they're not usually the ones weighing them. Mm -hmm. And so we're checking that and kind of reporting back to them from what we're seeing as well. Okay. All right. That's good. So we talked about not, um, not producing enough, not gaining enough to be chunky, um, and fat and chubby. Um, so the next, I think the next myth was that they're just going to be alone in this process because if I breastfeed, no one else is able to feed my baby besides me. And there's a partial component to that that is based in fact. But what's on the other side of that that completely kind of annihilates that myth? 
there's usually someone next to you or someone in the house with you. Mm-hmm. And you can always, well, hopefully, I hope yes. people can always have someone near them and around them to make them feel like they're not alone. And right. so usually, you know, your partner is right there. A lot of times partners ask, you know, my wife is over here feeding, my partner is over here feeding this kiddo. How do I help? Because I mm-hmm. feel like all I'm doing is waking this baby up and passing them to the left. Right. And I'm like, you help by waking that baby up and changing that diaper and passing mm-hmm. them to the left and burping them and doing skin to skin and yes. reading and bath time. And it's just so many things that can go on that they can help with that helps nursing because we need someone there to be able to do other things with us. Right. And I think there are two parts to that is that breast milk doesn't always have to come directly from the breast to offer the benefits associated with breast milk. And I think a lot of times people, just like you said, it's like, I'm the only one who can feed my baby because they need, I'm breastfeeding. So I'm the only one who can do that. Talk to us about the role of pumping and how that can bridge that gap between nursing, meaning the baby is receiving milk directly from the breast, human milk directly from the breast versus having that same milk, but in a bottle or another form, but still receiving yeah. that milk. And is, and what are the differences? It works. I mean, let's talk about the similarities. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. This thing works, you know, a lot of times people are like, oh my gosh, I was advised to never use a bottle for the first month that my baby is home. And, you know, as the research may support that, we're also going to support our sanity and our mm-hmm. mental health and our rest. And if we need some wiggle room, we're going to throw it on in there because right. we want to be able to wake up and feel refreshed and feel great so we can take care of our kiddos and feel great doing that as well. And so it definitely has a place in time. Sometimes, you know, we do have things to do. We do have to get mm-hmm. out of the house for whatever reason. And sometimes we're not comfortable having our kiddos with us, especially in the time of COVID yes. um, in this never ending pandemic. And so that is that is OK to have right. flexibility to bottle feed. Um, you know, we mentioned you mentioned other methods. So sometimes there's spoon feeding. Sometimes there's mm-hmm. cup feeding, uh, depending on how parents choose to feed their kiddo. And so mm-hmm. all of that is fine and well. And it is okay to do. And there's no difference between breast milk that comes directly from the breast and breast milk that comes in bottle form? Yes, or pumped milk? Okay. If anything, you may have to give it a little swirl. Okay. We will see the fat rise to the top. Okay. And so sometimes people are looking at it and they're like, oh my gosh, this is spoiled. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, 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 not at all. We just need to (laughs) give it a little swirl. (laughs) And then it is fine. Okay. Now... Now let's talk about same factor. Mother's going back to work, kind of baby's not necessarily going to be with her all the time. How does pumping work to make sure one, you maintain your milk supply and two, on the flip side that you store it, it's stored accurately so that it doesn't spoil. So talk to us about how, how does that process work and how do you educate mothers who are making that transition pretty much back to the workplace who may not have the privilege or the opportunity to continue working from home even during these times of COVID? Yeah, I want that parent and their supporters to practice beforehand for sure. Okay. So a lot of people will say, um, two weeks before you go back to work, start pumping and practice bottle feeding. I say a month. Okay. I think two weeks is stressful. I yeah. think so many emotions and hormones are firing off and that we just need a little bit more time to practice. Okay. And so a month before 
you start preparing, let's pump a couple times a day and see how that feels. So let's use another method to remove the milk and see how that feels. See how baby practices with the bottle. Like, let's do all of that together. There are some awesome guidelines on how to store human milk. I always go to the CDC. They have, like, this little half-page printout that I think is awesome. People can just throw that on the fridge or leave it in the kitchen somewhere. Okay, I'll put that in the show notes so that people can go directly to it. Definitely do that. And just really practice beforehand so that it doesn't seem like something that's so new and so scary. A lot of times... um, I'll hear parents say, oh, my goodness, my baby never took a bottle and I do not want to experience that ever again. So how do we get these babies to be okay with taking the bottle? And I'm like, "Okay, well, let's practice sooner and see how that goes. And a lot of times we hear the term nipple confusion, and that's a lot of times why women will not want to mix nursing from directly from the breast with bottle feeding because they're like oh we're going to get nipple confusion then they won't ever nurse from the breast and then I'm going to have to bottle feed talk to us about that I don't think it's a lot of nipple confusion I think it's more so flow preference like these babies aren't confused these babies are smart these babies know if I'm over here with this bottle thing, it is coming a little faster and I uh-huh. have to work that hard. Work as hard. <laughs> and I'm going to form a preference to what is going down over here. Right. Um, and so it's good to just recognize that they're different. And so there are ways in which bottle feeding can go a little bit smoother and where we can slow down the flow in order to make it more similar to baby nursing mm-hmm. directly from the body. So we can um, do what we call paced bottle feeding. Okay. And that's just slowing these feedings down. Sometimes parents are like, oh, yeah, we bottle fed. Baby took it so great. They finished it in like two minutes. And I'm like, Mm-mm. what? Whoa. We don't Whoa. even eat in two minutes. <laughs> right. That's not, that's that's, not that's, something that's a, we could do. No, that's a cure, sure case of indigestion and a whole bunch of other stuff going on that you don't want to bring into baby's world at that moment. Exactly. It's so going to backfire. Gonna slow things down. Yes. Okay, good stuff. Um, you mentioned earlier on how can those who who can and want to support, but again, may not always be there to help with feedings or wake up or have a night nurse or any of these things, how can those who are around mom, whether that be her partner, whether that be family members, whether that be other children, how can that community that's within the home or very nearby support a breastfeeding mother so that she feels empowered and strong and supported and able to do the thing that she has chosen to do, but with more gusto and zest. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The first thing I want families and supporters to do is not to, not to put in fear or not Mm. to add further insecurities. So sometimes when we are supporting other people, our comments are really based on what we're afraid of, right? Okay. And not necessarily what that person is afraid of. So I love for families to try to be um, participants in lactation consults. Okay. So if there is a supporter coming in, whether it be at the birthing facility, at a pediatrician's office, um, at a support group, whatever, ask questions get your questions answered and addressed too because they matter just as much as that birthing person's does because you're going to be the one at home and what we don't want is something happening where the wrong information is believed or Mm -hmm. where there's more doubt and more um, worry kind of thrown into the situation. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. 
first we want to start there. Okay. I When I worked for the government, I was in charge of getting all the military treatment facilities to be a breastfeeding and lactation, a breastfeeding and lactation support friendly or breastfeeding Fun. friendly. Yeah. Um, and so we used the 10 steps to successful breastfeeding to make Love sure it. we could get sure that everyone was doing the same thing, that the nurses were giving the same information because we had a lot of, oh, I breastfed and this is how I did it. Or, oh, my sister-in-law's cousins, neighbors, boyfriends, sisters, that kind of thing. And this is how she did it. And there was about 50,000 different stories talked about. And on each shift, each nurse would be saying something completely different. And while the, everyone was trying to be helpful, that wasn't, that was no doubt the case. When you have, are in the hospital for maybe two to three days and you're getting different information every shift, it can cause a lot of frustration in addition to a time frame where you're already feeling vulnerable, already feeling tired, confused, hungry, potentially lonely, depending on what the situation is. So when we started using the 10 steps of successful breastfeeding, it really did help delineate, line up, and streamline some of the information that those mothers were receiving. Talk to us about how one would like to or would go about choosing a hospital where they can walk in and know that they're going to be supported the best in terms of their breastfeeding and lactation goals. That is so important, and I don't think it's something that people consider much when it comes to choosing their place of delivery at all. I think a lot of times um, we're going off of reputation or what we mm -hmm. heard or how pretty a hospital may be, right. but we aren't necessarily going off of who's in there and how mm -hmm. do they function truly. Right. It's really awesome to be able to say like, oh, this hospital has lactation support every single day and mm -hmm. into the evening. That right. is awesome. It's really awesome to find hospitals who prioritize human milk and don't necessarily kind of push formula on people that don't want to use it. Right. And so I think it's great to definitely have those discussions during tours, during maternity tours, and really kind of drill whoever mm -hmm. is giving it yeah. um, so that they're honestly telling you how you're going to be supported during your stay. And sometimes um, you'll run into situations where people don't have support every day. People right. have one lactation consultant for 40 postpartum rooms. Um, yeah. I was one time working at a hospital that had about 40 postpartum rooms and consistently had 20 plus babies in like a level four NICU. Um, wow. And it was, it was really hard because we were stretched thin. And so asking those questions are really important, you know, like what support can I expect? Can I have a consultation that's longer than 20 minutes? Yeah. Is someone going to be able to check my latch and make sure I'm doing it the right way? Mm -hmm. um, is there a possibility to rent pumps if I feel like I need it? Right. Is there a possibility to get outpatient support if I need it? There's just so many questions that are good to consider when you're you're talking to these facilities. Absolutely. And I think, again, maternity tours, as far as I know, have not been 
fully canceled. They may have to be scheduled now during these, again, times of COVID. But it is mm-hmm. important to use that aspect and that feature, especially if it's available, because then you can ask the questions that you want to know in terms of ratios, in terms of who is the lactation support. How often is it there? If you deliver at one o'clock in the morning, will there be someone to help you? Or will you be at the mercy of whatever staff is there that may or may not have any breastfeeding and lactation support knowledge. Um, On the flip side, it's also important that you know what your goals are so that when you walk into that facility, you're not, they're not asking you or putting something on you that you're like, I don't know if I want that or no, I'm okay with my baby getting a pacifier. Are you, are you not? Like those are things that you need to um, double check on and breastfeeding um, friendly hospitals are a good way to make sure that you're getting a uniform aspect and direction to your care during that postpartum period. Um, We talked about breastfeeding, World Breastfeeding Week. We talked about the breastfeeding month and its it's awareness. Black Breastfeeding Week starts August 25th. And this year's theme is the big pause. And you did a very good job of very um, subtly sliding that in there. Um, The big pause and collective rest for collective power. So talk about how rest empowers all mothers and is especially important for black mothers who are breastfeeding. It's huge. You know, I feel like a lot of times as a black mother, people are looking on and they're like, well, what what are all the things that you're doing? You know, Mm -hmm. everyone's looking at black mothers and talking about how strong we are, how much we do, how ambitious we are, how educated we are, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, can I sit down and just be with my kid and do nothing? Thank right. you. Thanks. And that's that that's a lot. That is huge. Being able to just focus on yourself, your mental health, your rest and your family. That is huge. Um, a lot of people are experiencing a forced rest due to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people have, you know, gone back to the home have focused on their family and their needs for families. Right. Um, but at the same time, sometimes we just need to put our feet up yeah, and do much of nothing, which is doing something actually. So right. definitely needed. Yeah. Totally needed. And I feel that's where the intersection of those two themes come like right into play. Whereas community is necessary. Community is important. So that moms can know that they can take that pause. They can take that collective rest. They can take that time to reboot, to rejuvenate, so that they can continue doing their best job for their baby during that time. And oftentimes when we don't feel supported, we do put on that superwoman, I got to do everything for myself. I'm the only one who can do this. I'm the only one who can do it right. Um, no Ooh, one's going to do it one. the best. <laughs> I know the only one. No one's going to do this the way I want it done. And I think a lot of times we put ourselves in a box that we know, that we didn't want to be in, but we haven't allowed anybody else to give us a way out of that box. So I think that's a great intersection between community and collective rest and collective power. Wonderful. So we're getting ready to wind up here a little bit. Two more important questions. What are some additional resources you recommend for breastfeeding success? Outside of having everyone, a breastfeeding and lactation support person on your team. <laughs> <laughs> everyone needs a support group. Okay. That is number one. And that's something that, you know, it's definitely a local thing or a virtual thing. Um, okay. So depending on where you are, that can look different. But everyone needs a support group. 
whether okay. it be just like people in your neighborhood who you know also have children that are your age, your child's age, whether it be um, a more wide local community group, whether it be like, you know, someplace at the hospital or your birthing facility or someplace that your provider has done for the specific patients in a certain birth month. Okay. Whatever it is, we need to be surrounding ourselves with people who are going through what we're going through. Okay. That is huge, 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 huge. So definitely do a Google search or, you know, ask the, the other parents around you, like, who are you all using to talk? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you need to talk. Okay. Is, the, is La Leche League, is that still around and operable and doing it their thing during around. these times of COVID? <laughs> <laughs> It is. I think a lot of things are virtual. Um, okay. I definitely think, you know, check it out, see how it goes. I think it's good when we find groups or support groups that kind of mimic our communities and who we are too. Absolutely. And so sometimes um, spaces, not just allegedly, but spaces in general can be um, whitewashed. And I wouldn't recommend mm-hmm. that for women of color or parents of color. So I think that matters too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, two things. One, would you like to, again, share with us a little bit more about how you got to be a breastfeeding and lactation consultant? I think we kind of omitted that in the beginning because I think it's important that your story is kind of infiltrated and kind of fused and woven through this. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Because that's important. So we'll start there. Talk (laughs) to us about your own personal story, if you don't mind sharing. No, I don't. So I... Um, I found out that I was expecting during my senior year at Howard University. And so I was studying health education and health science at the time. Um, Funny enough, I just finished this really intense research course on maternal and child health, where I learned about all the crappy things that we do and all the good things that we do and um, all the awesome countries that do other things that we are just not doing. Um, Mm -hmm. So I was shocked out of my mind to like learn all of these things and then learn that I was expecting. And so I decided that I was going to deliver my baby naturally Mm -hmm. and that I was going to breastfeed. And Mm -hmm. so that's what I did at 21. Um, A lot of my mentors and my counselors saw me on campus pumping or Mm -hmm. running to my friend's house pumping and then running back on campus to finish my education And because of that, a lot of my research projects were based upon infant feeding at the time. Um, At that time, Howard University Hospital started doing their research on becoming a baby-friendly hospital. Mm -hmm. And so they were going through that whole process of those 10 steps. And so I was doing a lot of surveying on what support do people receive and what support do people think they really need. Um, And I learned a lot. I learned that people don't always get the support that they need, um, even when institutions may mean well. Yeah. And that there there are situations where people are falling through the cracks and they're not getting caught in a web of support. And so from then on, I just kept thinking about, you know, how do we get these parents to have more support? Um, And what exactly does that look like? I had struggles with infant feeding and I kind of decided to sit down and figure it out on my own because no one in my household did it. Like right. my mom didn't do it long. My family, um, generally are bottle feeders. Mm-hmm. The only person I saw nurse in my family was my Hungarian aunt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
I felt like I was doing things that I didn't know right. <laughs> about beforehand. Um, and I knew that feeling. I knew what it felt like to be like, what the heck is going on? Yeah. I could think of a hospital admission that I had within my postpartum period and thinking like, oh my God, girl, you had mastitis and no one knew. No one, no one knew. Even the doctors <laughs> didn't know. Right. I didn't even know. And yeah. so thinking back on that now, it's like, oh my gosh, we need more help. And yeah. so my counselors definitely were like, get this certification, study mm-hmm. this, follow this person. I felt like I was not pushed into it, but very much so like pulled a little bit. Like, yeah, you do this. Or well. called a little bit. Maybe they yeah, were calling called you. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. You do this well, so go do this some more. And the more that I did it, um, the more I loved it. I started off helping parents um, in the WIC office as okay. a breastfeeding um, peer counselor. Okay. And funny enough, I had no idea what an IBCLC was when I started that job, right. which is embarrassing, but I didn't. <laughs> so I remember. I remember no, that's real. That's me. real. That's real life. And that's honest. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. I remember someone saying, you know, oh, they're the lactation consultant. They're the IBCLC. And me literally Googling, like, what's an IBCLC? What are those acronyms? Like, what I is that no acronym? Idea. What does that mean? You know? and how are they, what are they doing for me? <laughs> Exactly. And so I looked at it and I was like, oh, shoot, maybe I could do that. Wow. And that's what I'm doing. I love it. I love it. So any part of parting words of wisdom? No, before I do that, I would ask one last question about breastfeeding. On the flip side, we talk about when to start, when to start learning about breastfeeding. There's all this controversy, especially in some of the moms groups that I am the designated practitioner in about when to stop breastfeeding and sometimes the situation gets a little gully like people like if this was a street I mean if if it was like not happening online or in some type of social media platform it would be like knives guns Mm -hmm. like full-blown like grease up because these people are throwing blows shots have been fired like people are coming for people like directly based on the different ways people choose and how long and when to breastfeed and I'm like wow I thought this was supposed to be a supportive group and like the moment you start talking about when to stop breastfeeding these wholesome nourishing crunchy (laughs) moms turn into gangsters and I'm like wow this is straight mafioso and I'm like I'm not comfortable being here Uh and nobody's safe like you have the moms who are like breastfeed until like your kid is 20 and then it's like oh at six months this is a done ditto we're over and it's like okay and a lot of the people get really 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 sensitive about their selection so as an overall professional speak to us about the bonding aspects the importance of breastfeeding to continue that bonding link that embrace that physical aspect talk to us about the emotional aspect for mom and baby and then talk to us about the actual nutritional clinical value of breastfeeding and to what point Yes, that bonding is almost never ending when that baby comes to that parent and they feel that secure attachment because they're getting cared for, they're getting that attention, and they're getting that nourishment. It's really important. I, I never understand why people have such strong feelings over how people 
you know, treating their own bodies and parenting their own children, especially when it's not doing harm, it's actually providing the most specific thing that mm-hmm. that baby can get that's specifically for them and their health and their right. concern. Um, it's insane to me. But I want people to also realize that people nurse all around the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so here, especially in the Americas, we have this um, view on how infant feeding fits into our society. Yes. And that is not, um, it's not always the best viewpoint. Because we talk about, like, for example, our policies and practice on maternity leave and paternity leave, parental leave right. in general. We talk about um, the pressures to return to work and all these other things that are kind of hindering us from having these long lasting bonding situations with our kiddos. And so right. we have to take that into account in the sense of us going to work six weeks after delivery. That's not a normal human thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's good to kind of just put that into perspective at times and understand that, you know, around the world, people usually stop nursing when the baby is between like two and five years old. Mm-hmm. And so Absolutely. here in the Americas, we may call it extended breastfeeding when really it's not an extension at all. It's just mm-hmm. infant feeding. It's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's life. It's normal. It's expected. Like it's not this, um, this weird crunchy thing yeah. that everyone is portraying it to be. I actually really don't like the term extended breastfeeding. It's quite annoying to me. Mm-hmm. It just, it's just breastfeeding. It's just nursing. It's just lactation and it's normal. Yeah. And it, I think that happens. Every family dynamic is completely different. So what fits well in one family at six months may not work for another family at three years. And yes. in the bigger scheme of things, if it's working for your family unit and your family bonding and your financial structure, like all those things, I never quite understood how is this hurting anybody else outside your family? Like, how is this even it affecting isn't. you? And, and you I, know, people have strong feelings about that. People think yes. it takes away from something that they did or chose to do or their experience, however good or however difficult it might have been. Right. And it doesn't. It's just it how doesn't. someone else chooses to navigate their dynamics with infant feeding. Yeah. And both of which are praised, both of which should be supported, both of which are accomplishments, regardless of how long, you know, nursing took place. Um, but being like mean and upset about it, that is inappropriate. And especially when it doesn't, somebody else's choice does not add to or take away from yours. Yeah. Period. Like it it just doesn't. So again, keeping in mind, there is no right or wrong length of time to breastfeed one's infant or um, the most important thing to focus on is how your infant is feeding in general, whether that's through breast milk directly from the breast, whether that's pumped breast milk, whether that's formula, whether that's a mix, whether that's at six months or five years, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, what's most important is for you, your baby, your family dynamics, and the infant feeding process in general. That's what we're focusing on. Yes. So with that yes, said, yes. any parting words of wisdom for those who choose to breastfeed, for those who are questioning, who are those who are contemplating, not sure or just want to make sure that they are positioning themselves to make the best decision for best infant feeding decision for their family. 
Yes. Prenatal classes and prenatal consults are amazing. I love them. They're probably one of my favorite consults because you get to throw away all of those myths. You get to feel more prepared. You get to really figure out if it's for you or not. I've had so many of those consults and people are like, oop, bottle all the way. And that's perfectly fine. So definitely like get all the information you feel like you need to know. Okay. Before the delivery takes place as possible. So that's a big one. And also know that, you know, whatever you do decide, that's valid and that is perfectly fine, whichever way. Excellent. So we didn't highlight this part because we're going to have to bring you back during another special month later <laughs> on. But um, you're also a labor support doula. Yes. 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 As well. And, um, I think labor support and being a lactation consultant goes an infant feeding consultant goes like so perfectly hand in hand, the perfect job. So that leads me to where we can find you and your social media handles, which I think is so, so nifty and so (laughs) creative. So tell us where we can find you on on social media. Yeah. You can find people who want to work with you. Definitely. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at birthandmilkco.com. Well, not .com. That is the website, but just Birth and Milk Co. Okay. Birth and Milk Co. All yeah. right. Perfect. Excellent. And again, we're going to have you on again because I am a proponent of every person who is going through labor, having a doula. Everyone asked me, I used to be a labor support doula myself, and I wish I'd known then what I know now in terms of every person who is going through that labor process. I don't care if your labor is two minutes. I don't care if you're having a baby at home. I don't care if you're having a baby at the hospital, a birthing center, or underneath a bridge. You need to have a a labor support person, whether they're a lay person, a professional doula, whatever it is, you need to have someone. So we're definitely going to talk to you again during that time because I really do want to talk about and build up how doula how important doulas are for that labor support process and the postpartum period as well so again thank you miss Sharnice. it's been such a pleasure i love your voice is so mellow and so nice again (laughs) i can't imagine anyone not wanting to work with you and we'll look forward to seeing you real soon okay thanks so much bye-bye you're welcome thank you for listening and sharing your time with us We hope you will join us for our next episode. Now, stick with us for one o'clock with Vino Blues' Wakia Henry. Hello again, my fellow wine sippers. Welcome back to one o'clock. Let's talk about wine, baby. Let's talk about... Okay, I gotta get me a a really good intro song, I think, um, when I start off. Maybe you guys can help me with that. Okay, anyway. I'm Waikia. I'm the founder of Vino Blue Mobile Wine Bar, where we host and serve wines for social, corporate, and private events. Um, you know, our information should definitely be in the description, so please feel free to contact us for your wine needs and um, to serve at your events. We look forward to hearing from you. Tonight, um, we are going to be exploring a bottle of Pinot Noir that I introduced in our last segment. Um, For those who don't know, I handpicked these wines from Total Wine um, so that they're easily accessible for you all and you could possibly um, pick them up and grab them before our our next session so you can explore them with me. I'm sure you can order them offline if necessary, but you know, Total Wine tends to be 
um, very accessible in many different places. So that is why I decided to do Total Wine. Not trying to give them any plug or anything, but yeah, I did that because it's easier to, to grab a bottle from them. And we can hopefully sip these wines together. Um, but tonight um, we're going to be doing this Pinot Noir that I introduced in our last session. It is actually from the maker of Cardwell Hill Cellars. And it's from the, the region of Willamette Valley, which is in Oregon, a part of the United States. So we were tasting a U.S. wine. Um, and it's a 2016. On the, on the bottle, it actually says it's a state bottled, which um, typically means that they do everything in-house on the vineyard. So it should definitely add to the quality of the wine. Um, so we'll, we'll be able to determine that once we taste tonight. Uh, also, we've actually tasted this Willamette, not this particular maker, but we've tasted this type of varietal, the Pinot Noir, from this region, Willamette Valley, before. So I thought maybe, to make things a little interesting, that I would give you a pop quiz after our session tonight. Uh, just to see if I can test your memory, see what you've learned about Pinot, see if you're actually listening. So I'm gonna give you a refresher about um, the, the region and the wine, and I'll tell you a little bit more about um, you know, what I experienced in this Pinot Noir bottle. But there are some key things that I'm going to say tonight that hopefully you can retain and we'll, we'll quiz you on it, okay? That should be fun. Uh, I know you guys are expert drinkers by now, so this is gonna be easy breezy, right? Um, so guys, my objective in these sessions, of course, is to, of course, to enjoy wines, which I do with you guys, review them, and also to enhance your um, wine drinking experience by just sharing a little bit of knowledge that I've picked up along the way. So, you know, when you're going to restaurants and you're ordering wine, you'll be able to um, determine if that's a great glass that you will want based on our rankings that we've done in the past. The Blick, which you, I'm sure you remember, you'll use those um, ranking skills to determine whether you can order this bottle for the, the table, right? And you'll look like you know what you're talking about, <laughs> like I typically try to. Um, so let's get started. Go ahead and open your bottle. For those who have not, if you recall in our last sessions, I kind of gave you a tip on opening your, your bottles like maybe an hour or two before our sessions to allow the wine to open up some, and that's what I did. But for those who did not, um, please take this time to open your bottles, um, get it ready for our tasting. As you do that, let me just go ahead and do you a quick refresher on this um, Pinot Noir grape. Um, so, what we know about Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir is a thin skin, early budding, and or early ripening grape. It is a thin skin grape that actually buds and ripens pretty early. And because of that, um, this grape does well in regions that are moderate to cool, meaning that the climate, you know, is not very hot or warm. Um, you have your cooler climates that allows this grape to ripen slowly, right? And so in the warmer climates, what usually happens to a Pinot Noir, because it's a thin skin grape, um, it'll over ripen, causing our wine to be jammy. We don't want that. We don't want to be drinking Welch's grape juice, right? So we um, tend to go lean towards wines that are Pinot Noirs that are grown in regions that are cooler. Um, and then they're giving you the best expression of that grape. 
Um, Pinot Noir is actually a wine that is lighter. They would say it's medium body, but it's lighter in a sense that it's not heavy and um, on our palate like your typical Cabernet Sauvignons. Um, this is a lighter um, drinking red wine, which is really good um, for you know our summer theme. This is why you know I picked it. So it's a lighter wine, lighter medium body wine. You can it's easy to drink um, and easy to pair, um, but because of that. You know, I want you to keep that in mind. Because of that, we're going to get what flavors? Our red fruit aromas and flavors. Our red fruit aromas and flavors in Pinot Noir. Instead of your typical black fruit, we're going to do red fruits. So we're talking about strawberries, cherries, raspberries, red plums, all of those rare fruits um, that you could possibly think of um, that you would... Um, that you would taste in the Pinot Noir. That's your typical notes that we're going to um, experience. So another um, key component about Pinot Noir is that they tend to age this wine in oak, right? So we're, we're gonna be looking for our spicy notes, our, our oak notes rather, and that's gonna be like spicy, toast, cedar, um, anything that smells like maybe a, a unlit cigar, anything that gives you a sense of this wine has been sitting for a number of years um, or months in oak. Um, as far as the ripening, I'm gonna go back, go back to the ripening part of it. Sometimes you're gonna get notes in the Pinot Noir that are more vegetile, vegetile or earthy because um, when the region is cooler, sometimes the grape don't fully ripen. And when the grape doesn't fully ripen, will tend to get those vegetile notes, right? Those, you're the stringent, uh, really grippy notes. Um, and it's like maybe cabbage or, or wet leaves or earthy notes, um, sometimes mushroom. You'll, you'll get that in some of your, in some of your Pinot Noirs. Um, but because of this region, I'm not sure what we're gonna to experience tonight, but the region itself, Willamette Valley, um, is, a region that has moderate climate right so it has a moderate climate and it has a cool breeze from the pacific ocean so what that means is that um, the moderate climate it may be some really sunny long hot days that allows the grape to ripen and that cool breeze comes in at night and kind of cools or slows down the ripening of that grape which gives a great equal balance so that it's not over ripening and it's ripening just right. Um, and we'll determine if this is a fully ripe, uh, fruity, luscious wine, or if it's somewhat of a, maybe a underripe um, vegetable um, wine, right? So remember, the region of Willet, Willamette Valley, um, it has a climate of moderate with a cool breeze from the Pacific, right? the Pacific Ocean, that adds to the slow ripening of that wine. It has long sunny days and cool nights and a great amount of sun exposure to your, to your grape, right? So um, let's get to tasting this bad boy. Um, so if you haven't already, I hope you finished opening your bottle. I've already opened my, my bottle of wine. I'm gonna go ahead and start pouring. Please do the same. And let's see what we are going to taste in this wine. 
you may want to go ahead and give your, yourself a nice pour because <laughs> I am. And so we can really get into the notes of this wine. Give it a good spin. And as you can see right away, like I mentioned, that Pinot Noir is a, light, a lighter wine. So you can pretty much see right through this wine. It's light, um, it's refreshing, um, it's medium body because maybe the oak aging. Um, however, it's not a heavy wine. It's one of your lighter red wines that you can pretty much drink on its own. Swirl it around. And remember, we're going to be tasting with our senses, our see, smell, taste, sip, whether, whether um, or smell, our tasting, sorry. And then we're going to fill the wine in the back of our, our mouth. So first we're going to see, which we've done, and we're going to smell. We're going to see what happens to the notes on our nose. And for me, as we do this, we're going to be judging and ranking with our blick. For me... Um, I didn't get a very intense um, uh, bouquet bursting out of the bottle. However, I can smell something um, from a distance. And as I bring it closer, I can definitely start to smell those notes in the wine. I don't have to lean in real hard. Um, so I'm going to say there is some level of intensity, not at the highest intensity, but there is some level of intensity in this wine. And so I can definitely smell some of those notes. And I think what we need to do here, this wine would have been great for decanting, I can tell. We need to go ahead and keep swirling this to open it up some more. Swirl it around. Go ahead and take a good whiff of it. So remember, smelling with your dominant nose. Take a good whiff. What do you smell right away? Right away, uh, for me, you know, I like to look for the fruit first, but however, what stands out to me in this wine is um, the oakiness, the oakiness and the herbaceousness. So um, I'm definitely smelling that um, toasty cedar, um, the spiciness um, of what you typically would smell when a wine has been aged and matured in oak. I'm definitely smelling those notes. And as I keep swirling in the bottle, in the glass, I'm starting to open it up and I can start to smell some of the, um, the fruitiness, some of the strawberries, rare fruit. I'm actually smelling a perfume um, type aroma here. So a nice bouquet uh, perfume smell here. So let's go ahead, like strawberries, cherries, call them out. Whatever you smell, call it out, whatever it reminds you of. Um, I'm leaning more of a herbaceous here. So I'm thinking uh, tomato, <laughs> tomato leaves, Cabbage with wet um, leaves. Um, mushroom is another typical note for Pinot Noir. I'm definitely um, smelling a lot of the herbaceousness in this in this wine. Um, so, although there is some fruitiness coming out, what's more pronounced to me is the herbaceousness of this wine. So that tells us what that tells us that maybe this grape did not fully ripen. Um, but it may have ripened just enough um, so for them to make a beautiful herbaceous type wine with some fruit um, standing out as well. So let's go ahead and take a sip. I'm sorry, please make sure you get a good amount of your mouth. Um, so for me, right away, 
This wine tells me that it is high and acid. My mouth is watering up. It's definitely not heavy on my palate. So again, this is a lighter, maybe medium light to medium body wine. The tannies in this wine does not stand out for me at all. I would say very low tannies. There's no drying of my gums or my mouth, no grippiness. I, I get a, a spiciness to it and um, definitely some warmth as I'm drinking it. That means that the alcohol level in this wine should be pretty high to see. This alcohol level is 13.9. Um, um, we can lean that towards the higher side. Um, so the ABV, which stands for alcohol by volume um, of this wine is 13.9%, but I can feel it. What, one of the indications of um, alcohol levels is the heat that it brings. So if you can feel that warmthness, then this wine would be to me high in, in alcohol. And I, would be, I wouldn't be surprised if, if it's higher than 13.9, but they just put that on the label. Um, so we get the warmth from the heat. Um, there is definitely um, low tannings because there is not that drying, but there definitely is that watery sensation in our mouth. So we got high in acid. Um, the fruit flavors. Let's go into let's talk about what flavors and what aromas we're picking up on our palate. As I said before, the herbaceousness. So we get that astringent grippiness. That's the herbaceousness of this wine. And, um, and definitely there is definitely some toastiness and some um, spices in it. So I do, I do eventually taste those strawberries as I spin it around more, I switch it around. Strawberries, cherries, plums. I wouldn't say they're very ripe. Um, they're, I would say they're maybe not as ripe, but they're in there, right? So that's how we, um, we're um, picking out our notes and our wines. And we're gonna rate this wine based on Blick, B-L-I-C, balance, length, intensity. Intensity on both the nose and the mouth, and then the complexity, right? Balance, is this wine balanced? Does one flavor or one note of the wine overpowers the other? So I would say the oakiness in this wine is well balanced with the acidity. So the oakiness and the acidity, acidity the herbaceousness is well balanced as well as the, the, the alcohol level. The alcohol level is not too much. However, I would have loved to get more fruit flavors coming out for me. Um, so I don't know if I would rate this um, great for length. I would probably not give it that because what we're looking for when we talk about the length of a wine, yes, I do, although I do feel something in my mouth after I drink it, I'm not necessarily getting all the great um, flavors, like mmm, their fruitiness, mmm, I can taste those strawberries, and I definitely get the herbaceousness, um, but it's not, you know, something that I would like, you know, yum yum to me. So I wouldn't give it length. You know, you may, you may, you may have a different experience, but for me, I probably wouldn't give it the length. But I would, I would give it some, I would give it the balance, I would give it the length. The intensity is definitely there, because although, um, I'm not tasting a lot of uh, some of the fruits. I know it's there, but I am depicting the herbaceousness and the tomato leaves and all those different things that I kind of mentioned. And I am tasting the oakiness. So there's some intensity and complexity because I can pull out so many things on the palate as well as the nose. So I will rate this wine 
three out of four as very good. Um, let me know what you rate it as. Um, would I get this bottle again? I surely will. <laughs> and because of the um, how they've actually presented this Pinot Noir with um, a nice amount of oakiness, um, it may feel like it's a heavy wine, but really isn't. But it goes very well with meats, right? Your fatty meats. So I can see pairing this with a nice sirloin um, steak, maybe a lean filet mignon, a savory uh, lamb chop, maybe juicy uh, hamburger or whatever kind of burger you, you like to eat, vegan burger, um, and maybe a, a nice uh, fatty salmon or something like that. Definitely um, heavier foods will go with this wine just because of that oakiness in it, right? But again, you know me, I love drinking wine without even having to think about pairing. So please don't let pairing stop you from enjoying a nice bottle of wine. So now that we're um, finished with our descriptions and um, going over our refresher of Pinot Noir, let's get down to the test. Let me test your knowledge. I'm going to run down a few questions real quick for you. And um, as I go, you just say them out loud. I promise I can hear you. <laughs> okay, so um, number one, what style of wine is Pinot Noir? What style of wine is Pinot Noir? Is it a white wine? A dry wine, an oaky wine, a sparkling wine, or a rosé wine? Which style, what style of wine is this? Dry wine, correct, good guys, good guys, you got that right. Um, number two, in what state is Willamette Valley? What state of the United States is Willamette Valley? You should know this. That's right, you got it, Oregon. Oregon is where Willamette Valley, the beautiful region of Willamette Valley, and I wish, I wish to go there one day, because um, uh, there are a lot of great region, wine regions in the United States. Um, so, Oregon, Oregon is the correct answer. Next question, name a note that indicates whether this wine has been matured in oak. Name a note that indicates whether this wine that we're drinking right now, this Pinot Noir, has been matured in oak. So I said a few things. Remember, let me see if you can pick at least one of them. That's right. So I said spicy, toasty, cedar. Um, uh, what else I said? I even said that it is kind of give you like a, a unlit cigar type, but definitely those um, wood flavors and notes are in this wine, absolutely. Next question, what does ABV stand for? What does ABV stand for? That's right, alcohol by volume. ABV stands for alcohol by volume. I mentioned that before. Next question, in what climate does Pinot Noir thrive in? What climate does Pinot Noir, our climates, does Pinot Noir thrive in? You got it. You guys are genius. You know this, this wine better than I do. So it's either moderate or cool. So moderate to cool climates, or you can say moderate or cool. Um, they're all correct. It does not thrive in warm climates because it could get too jammy. Remember that. Okay, next question. What fruit, fruit flavors or aroma, aromas are typical in a Pinot Noir? What fruit flavors and aromas are typical in a Pinot Noir? Is it black fruit, 
Red fruit or tropical fruit? Which one? Red fruit. I think I said a gazillion times that is red fruit, strawberries, raspberries, red cherries, red plums, all those rare fruits are in Pinot Noir. You got it. You guys are getting it. Um, next question, number seven. Is Pinot Noir an early or late ripening grape? Is Pinot Noir an early or late ripening grape? But those who said early, you got it. Yes, it's an early ripening grape. Remember, I told you the thin skin, early budding, early ripening. That's why it has to be grown in regions that are moderate to cool so they can slow down the ripening. Absolutely, you guys got it. Pinot Noir is a dark, heavy, full body wine. True or false? Pinot Noir is a dark, heavy, full body wine. False, you guys know this, I already said it. Light, you can look at yourself in the bottle. Light, and it is what? Medium bottle, body, or it could be light body. Pinot Noir, next question. Pinot Noir is the most planted grape in Willamette Valley. Pinot Noir is the most planted grape in Willamette Valley. True, true or false? It is true. I'm sorry. I gave the answer where I think I did. The answer is true. Pinot Noir is the most planted grape in Willamette Valley. Good job. And our last question. Name one character or note that describes the wine we are drinking tonight. This beautiful bottle of Pinot. Name one character or note that describes the wine we are drinking tonight. I said a lot. You know, you can actually, you know, come up with your own, but a few ones that I said, let's see. You could have said the wine is oaky. Uh, you could have said that it's herbaceous. You could say it's high acidity with low tannins. You could say the alcohol is high in this wine. It's rare fruit. You know, it has notes of strawberries. You're different, you're, you know, red fruit, strawberries, cherries, raspberries, you all that. There are many descriptives that we've mentioned tonight and some that you may have jotted down yourself. So, how did you do? I know you guys are pros, man. I'm probably just, you know, rambling, but you guys know this wine. You know all, everything about it. You know how to rank, rank your wine. You know how to drink your wine. You know how to enjoy your wine. You have connected with wine. So now we're just actually just having fun. So I thank you all. I think you've done great. Trevian, Trevian. I'm trying to learn French. Um, so let's see. Let's go ahead and just introduce, what are we sipping next week? Like I mentioned before, I pick our wines from Total Wine. Let's see what we have for next week. Next week, we're gonna be um, drinking a bottle of Côte du Rhône. Côte du Rhône. It is a region in France. Um, these wines in France, they're typically labeled by the region, so Whereas, you know, U.S. wines, you see wines from California, whatever, it's going to say, you know, Pinot Noir or Cabernet. Um, in France, they actually label their wines by the region, and you just have to pretty much know the grapes. So Côte du Rhône is um, primarily a Grenache grape. So we're going to be testing and um, tasting and savoring over this Côte du Rhône. Um, I actually had the, um, the guy in Total Wine help me with this one. He told me if I'm gonna get a, a, a nice Grenache, which is what I was looking for, I should go to the very renowned region of Cote d'Iron. I totally agree. Um, the maker of this bottle is Guy Musée, 
and that is Guy, you know how to spell Guy, but Muse is, is spelled M-O-U-S-S-E-T. It is a 2019 bottle, so please, you know, pick up your wine for next time at Total Wine so we can um, enjoy this. I am actually looking forward to this one too. I'm always looking forward to wine, but I'm actually looking forward to this one. So um, hopefully you can taste it with me, pick up your wine from Total Wine for our next segment. Well, this concludes my segment for tonight. I hope you enjoyed tasting as much as I did, and I look forward to the next bottle. This was really fun, guys. Until next time, be safe, be healthy, and please drink more wine, because I am. Au revoir. Thank you, Wakia, for providing us with another opportunity to wind down together. Take a look at the show notes for more information about today's guest, links to the website, contact information, and social media channels. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Think about one gem you can take away from this episode and apply it to your own life. Also, please take a moment to like the episode, subscribe to the channel, comment, and share with your family, friends, and colleagues. Till we meet again, remember to nourish your flourish and see you real soon. Salud!